Thanks for downloading the UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to www.ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a recording from Law and Revolution in Ireland, Law and Lawyers Before, During and After the Cromwellian Interregnum. This conference took place in the House of Lords on the 27th and 28th of November 2014. It was organised by Dr Coleman Dennehy in association with the Irish Legal History Society and generously supported by the Society, the Bank of Ireland, UCD Humanities Institute, University College London Department of History and UCD School of History and Archives. The event was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media. This episode features a paper from Session 3 entitled Charles II's Legal Officers and Their Influence on the Restoration Land Settlement in Ireland, 1660-1665. The paper was given by Dr Neil Johnston of the UK Department of Culture, Media and Sport. In this paper, I want to talk about uh, the role that Charles II legal officers played in the creation of the Acts of Settlement and Explanation. The former was passed in 1662 and was meant to establish the grounds upon which claims of innocence of involvement in the wars of the 1640s could be adjudicated. It came about through torturous negotiations and redrafts, and ultimately it failed to satisfy all but a few suitors. The Act of Explanation was passed late in 1665 and was intended to iron out some of the contradictions within the Act of Settlement. But I want to focus in particular on the role that uh, two men played in their creation. Sir William Donville, uh, the Irish Attorney General, and Sir Henry Finch, the English Solicitor General. As all draft bills had to be sent to London and approved by the English Privy Council before, before they could be presented to the Irish Parliament, Finch's role in the Irish Land Settlement was paramount. He, um, he acted on the Crown's behalf, um, but as Charles II had no more than a general and vague notion of the terms any Irish settlement would take, it is through the actions of the Solicitor General that we see how such a policy was formulated. This paper um, will be presented in three parts. The first will consider how the basic ideas for the settlement were developed in Dublin between February and May 1660, before being fleshed out by the Irish administration the following year. Part two will consider how these were modified in London and what effect they had in Dublin. And part three will briefly consider the act of explanation to see how closely it relates to the original proposals. The prospect of a restoration of Charles Stuart in 1660 gave those Protestants who had been marginalised by Charles Fleetwood's regime the opportunity to consolidate their partial gains that they had made after Henry Cromwell assumed office in 1657. By early 1660, the personal grievances had coalesced into a larger disgruntlement with how Ireland had been governed in the 1650s. Uncertainty surrounding General Monk's intentions for government and Parliament in London bred fear and resentment in Ireland, so Charles Coote, um, on behalf of the officers of the Irish Army under his command, and Roger, Lord Brockle, on behalf of the Munster officers, released declarations in support of the return of the secluded members of the Long Parliament. Ostensibly about the current tensions in London, each declaration also addressed the resentments felt by all Protestants in Ireland since the mid-1650s. In his declaration, Brogill vented about the financial burden that had been placed on landowners in Ireland by Westminster, the unfavourable customs levies that had been imposed on on Irish trade, the failure of the protectorate parliaments to legislate for the Irish land settlement, as well as the failure to extend the Reformation, as he saw it, throughout Ireland. Brogel was adamant that the source of all Ireland's problems lay in the fact that no Parliament had sat in Ireland since 1648. Thereafter, 
Taxes had been raised to support the army, but never, and I quote, were armies and fleets more in arrear, while further taxes and impositions were levied on many thousands of families, but they've been beggared by them. Coote gave a similar account of how, and I quote again, the fundamental laws had been trampled upon and an arbitrary government endeavoured to be introduced, the civil rights, properties and liberties of the people and the persons and estates broken in pieces. Impositions and taxes on the people um, without example were laid and increased in an excessive manner and measure whereby thousands of family, families have been ruined and forced to beg their bread. As with Brockhill's declaration, these sentiments were couched in a call for a return of secluded members and an too-subtle swipe at those persons of anabaptistical and other fanatic spirits who controlled the Irish government during the 1650s. Underpinning all of this was a defiant demand that the plantation of Ireland be preserved in the hands of the adventurers and soldiers and other English and Protestants. The establishment of the General Convention of Ireland in March 1660 provided uh, these Protestants with an opportunity to formulate policies to assuage their grievances and as Charles Stuart's restoration moved from a possibility to a probability they restructured their policies to reflect the restored monarchy. By mid-June a distinct set of proposals were ready to be delivered to the King and a delegation of members of the Convention uh, was chosen to travel to London. Upon arrival in London the Convention's delegates presented to the King their proposals for a settlement in Ireland which they entitled Their Humble Desires. Their agenda reflected the frustrations of the previous decade, and if it implemented, Protestant political control in Ireland would have been total. Given their previous complaints, their list was hardly surprising. Primarily, it was underpinned by a request for a short Protestant-only parliament which would operate uh, without recourse to Poynings Law, although this um, demand was quietly dropped once they got to London. Such an Irish parliament would decide upon benefices for an Episcopal church, ensure the payment of military arrears and implement and regulate the collection of taxes in Ireland. Likewise, the courts were to be repopulated with candidates chosen by the Irish Parliament. In some detail, they then suggested that all of the ordinances and declarations that had been issued by the Irish Convention should become law and that a Bill of Indemnity for Irish Protestants be introduced alongside a Bill of Attainder for Irish Catholics, who are universally to be considered rebels. Building upon this, they proposed that an Act would then be passed for securing the estates of adventurers and soldiers and others and transplanted Irish in Connacht and County Clare in such a manner and with such exceptions and limitations as the said Parliament themselves shall think fit. They were telling the King what they were going to get, essentially. Thereafter, care was to be taken for the just and speedy satisfaction of all adventurers who had not yet been satisfied pursuant to the Act of Adventurers of 1642. And if this plan was realised, Protestant estates would have been guaranteed as of the 7th of May 1659, which would have confirmed the Cromwellian plantation. The King's focus, however, was in implementing an act of indemnity and oblivion for England, so the delegates found themselves rebuffed, as Charles had no intention of pursuing a hasty settlement for Ireland. Instead, he politely thanked them for their efforts and promised that the proposals would be considered in due course. And if nothing else, their proposals did result at that time in the assembling of a committee to specifically consider Irish affairs at court. By late August, Charles declared himself in a position to consider the Irish Convention's uh, proposals, and he set aside time throughout September for this purpose. He also, added a, a he also allowed sorry, a delegation of Irish Catholics to attend court to respond to these proposals. This uh, turned into a tit-for-tat exercise where claims of innocence were slung back and forth before the King, who quickly tired of the process. As was to become his habit, Charles passed the proposals to his Solicitor General, Sir Henry H. Finch, 
and told him to make sense of them. As Solicitor General, Finch was occupied by the act of indemnity in the trial of the regicides at this point, but there is a strong suggestion that he took a considerable bribe to agree to the arg- uh, argument that there was enough land in Ireland to satisfy the claims of all concerned. And at this point, it was pre-1649 royalist soldiers, post-1649 parliamentarian soldiers, adventurers, as well as all the Catholics. This process, um, Finch's examinations, culminated in late November in the King's gracious declaration, through which he sought to restore Catholics under the terms of the 1649 Articles of Peace, while also ensuring that all legal claims were honoured. And this was the biggest mistake that Charles could have made. The Gracious Declaration was a convoluted and contradictory document that aimed to please erstwhile interests on all sides, but caused an awful lot more confusion. It raised the hopes of Catholics, um, and as a result, Protestants realised that much more restrictive terms were needed. So between December 1660 and February 1661, a set of what were called instructions were drawn up that undermined the Catholic claims to restoration and buttressed the Protestant position. When a court of commissioners convened in Dublin from late March 1661, it was quickly found that the Gracious Declaration did not have legal authority to decide matters of land, ownership, and it became obvious that only an act of Parliament would ensure this. As a result, from late April 1661, the Irish administration set about revising proposals for the land settlement. Several weeks of heated debates within the Privy Council, as well as a separate process of suggestions from the Irish House of Commons, culminated at the end of July with the dispatch of a draft bill of settlement to London. Again, debates on this began in the uh, first few days of September, and old Charles had publicly announced that he'd set aside three weeks of Privy Council business to focus on the Irish matters. Um, By the end of the second day, he gave up and ordered that all the papers presented, those pending, and all other matters that were to be discussed, should again be passed to Finch. As Finch attempted to make sense of these proposals and counter-arguments, the process essentially ground to a halt over the subsequent months. And the Solicitor General, in late November 1661, readily admitted that he could not make any sense of what was before him, and it must be said, the final outcome of the Act of Settlement um, uh, bears witness to this. But from late 1661, there was also a change in attitude in government. As resistance increased to the King's intentions for Ireland, Charles sought to consolidate uh, his government, and the Lord's Justice who administered the kingdom were removed, and the Duke of Ormond was installed as Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. When Charles appointed Ormond as Lord Lieutenant, the Bill of Settlement was far from finished. Finch had not given a clear indication if the Irish government's draft bill of settlement contravened the gracious declaration and instructions, and nor had the King provided a clear blueprint for the settlement. Now, unfortunately, Finch has left little or no detailed commentary on his decisions regarding Ireland, but as stated, if any evidence of a Crown policy does exist, it's in the actions of the Attorney and Solicitor General. Both Irish Protestants and Catholics had indicated their preferences, but the Protestant interests had not sufficiently persuaded the King to unequivocally back their proposals. Thus Finch was in a difficult position, for he had to interpret the King's wishes while withstanding the considerable pressure that he was coming coming under, and this really appears to have slowed up his deliberations. Over the spring of 1662, numerous other delays hampered progress of the Bill at court, and all this began to make trouble for the Dublin government. Frustration at the delays, as well as signs that the King did not have a, a solely Protestant settlement at heart, meant disgruntlement became increasingly vocal especially in the Irish Parliament. 
In January 1662, the King had ordered that no more letters patent were to be granted until Ormond's Commission for the Lord Lieutenancy um, passed the Great Seal of Ireland. This in turn caused a backlog in Ireland when the King uh, went against his own order and sent numerous decrees for letters patent to be issued, placing the Lord's Justice in an awkward position. And it was the Irish Attorney General, Sir William Domble, who bore the brunt of these frustrations. Domble was a superb legal mind and a very strong royalist. But in particular, he had little interest in pleasing many of those who had prospered in Ireland in the 1650s, and his work um, antagonised many Protestants, particularly those Protestants who had arrived in Ireland after 1650. In a letter to Ormond, he described the difficulties he faced, and I'm going to quote it at length because it bears witness to the pressure he was under. The variety of interests and the diversity of judgments I have to deal with almost of necessity speak the work to be great. For here are the adventurers' frauds to be discovered, the soldiers' half-debentures and double satisfactions to be detected, the old innocent Protestants to be preserved, and the prosecution of all this lie upon my account. If I should conceal or suppress the others, I I would be most unjust. And yet, while I labour to steer an upright course in both, I'm speaking of as an evildoer, the first say I'm a Tory, an enemy of the English interest and the just demands of the adventurers, the other say I am lukewarm and too remiss in the vindication of their rights. It appears there was a little bit of skullduggery going on, and in an effort to curtail Donville's work, all supplies seem to be have withdrawn from the office of the Attorney General by what he himself called the enmity of those two brethren in iniquity, the adventurer and the soldier. Dumbledore's response was one in kind, where he upheld the king's orders from January and would not issue patents for lands or pardons for past offences. This caused him even more strife, and he continued to complain to Ormond in March of 1662. However, the Lord Lieutenant was largely unmoved by Dumbledore's complaints and reminded uh, Dumbledore that he had known well what he was facing when he was appointed to the post, especially if he discharged his duties with strict regard to the rules of justice. But Ormond also praised Donville, um, reminding him that his writings and insights were very well received in London, and he commented that Donville's work would be even more valuable to the government when the new uh, Court of Claims was established in Ireland under the Act of Settlement. So from April 1662, Finch in London had finished his deliberations in draft bill of settlement and approved it for presentation to the English Privy Council. It was quickly rubber-stamped here and returned to Dublin as part of a package of ten bills, um, including the all-important financial bills, where the customs and excise and subsidies were also sent back, um, which were intended to uh, give some stability to the kingdom's finances. Despite being months in preparation and undergoing numerous additions and revisions, the Act of Settlement ultimately failed to deliver on its intended purpose for several reasons. The most obvious is the multitude of conflicting suitors it intended to satisfy. The King had made a political mistake in over-promising on what he could deliver in the Gracious Declaration, and this set a precedent for ill-judged pledges that he could not fulfil. The Act of Settlement was a a logical continuation of the 1661 February Instructions, but despite this, the creation of a commission with powers to resolve land disputes was the single biggest threat to the status quo. While its inclusion did not immediately create trouble, it was not long before this changed. With the first court of commissioners having failed, the Crown wanted another commission to adjudicate upon claims of innocence, and the Act established this body as an extra-parliamentary tribunal with increased powers, but crucially, it would have independent commissioners who were uh, to swoop in from England.
The title of the Act of Settlement is indicative of what, is intended, of what it intended to achieve. It was an effort to better execute the Gracious Declaration by satisfying the adventurers, soldiers and other subjects there. By including both the Gracious Declaration and an updated and expanded version of the February 1661 instructions, continuity wasn't reinforced and it repeated the King's um, wish that an honourable settlement would be implemented. While this may have been possible in 1660 when the government had the benefit of significant goodwill, the political situation had changed by 1662. This, however, was not an immediate reason for the Bill of Explanation was called for. Rather, the Act of Settlement did not provide the security that many Protestants, especially the officers and newer interests, demanded from the government. The Act was presented in three sections. The first consisted of a long and angry preamble and six clauses. The second reprinted the Gracious Declaration. While it had been understood all along that an Act of Parliament confirming that the Declaration was needed, the Gracious Declaration's inclusion may also have been a reminder to respect the King's initial intentions. The third section was a substantially expanded version of the instructions, incorporating an updated, and updating the original 62 instructions that had been approved in February 1661 and adding another 164, giving a total of 226 um, oftentimes contradictory and convoluted um, directions to the Irish government and the future commissioners of the Court of Claims. When considering the Gracious Declaration, it's important to keep in mind that Charles had been persuaded in November 1660 that there was enough land in Ireland to satisfy the competing interests. Despite being the shortest document of the Restoration Settlement, it was by far the most balanced and it laid out the terms that the King understood to be the most equitable. By immediately acknowledging the 1649 Articles of Peace, it was generous to Catholics. Thereafter, however, it guaranteed the majority of estates to those who possessed them as of the 7th of May 1660, 1659. And this makes no sense. All soldiers and officers who publicly declared their loyalty to the Crown, regardless of past record, but unless they were regicides, would be secured in estates, while those who had to vacate lands would be compensated with land elsewhere of equal value. By naming those Irish Catholics who had served the King abroad, Charles also fulfilled his desire to reward those who had served him in exile. The Gracious Declaration also promised an act of indemnity for Ireland, although it did not extend to those who planned the 1641 rebellion. In effect, it attempted to, to secure loyalists. The instructions of February 1661 had thoroughly suppressed the graciousness within the King's Declaration and attempted to remove Catholics from the equation altogether by placing limits on those who had lived within Confederate-controlled areas. Moreover, it rejected any engagement with Catholics who had served the Confederates before 1643, had allied with or fought for the Papal Nuncio, or had fought against the Parliamentarian Army. Thereafter, the instructions focused solely on resolving claims to the 49 officers, the Parliamentarian Army, the Church of Ireland bishops, and the grandees. These com uh, competing demands were undermined by several distinct elements of the Act of Settlement. By promising to convene a court of claims under the authority of independent commissioners, Catholics were given an opportunity to dispute the assertion that they were inherently guilty. Similarly, by favouring senior nobles and politicians at the expense of promises made to the 49 officers, the Act disadvantaged those whom the instructions had favoured. Although the Irish Parliament knew it could not reject the Bill of Settlement, for to do this would result uh, in further prolonging the process, the request for a speedy Bill of Explanation was understandable. These difficulties, however, were shrouded by a more significant problem. By failing to accurately calculate the quantity of previous land transfers, forfeitures and actual ownership as of 1662, the government had no idea 
um, how much land was available for restorations, nor how much of it was profitable to the Crown. Poor records from the Land Commissions of the 1650s further hampered this. While the Act of Settlement made provision for this dirt of clear detailed records by taking steps to create a catalogue of all land transfers and an Auditor General was appointed, uh, the limited nature of the information available in 1662 would continually hamper all other efforts at resolving legitimate land claims. The essential groundwork of the Act of Settlement was laid in Clauses 2 to 7. Within these, it was repeated that all forfeited lands were now vested in the Crown, meaning that only the King could divest them. This was the principle on which the whole settlement was based and ensured that the Crown was the, Crown was the primary arbiter, arbitrator sorry, in all disputes. The Act then confirmed that where lands were to be restored to Protestants or innocent Catholics, these changes would not be made until those who were to be removed first were reprised elsewhere from the stock of forfeited estates. So essentially they were proposing to start moving people around without knowing how much land was available and where they were going to go and how much land, how much the land, uh, what kind of profit it would raise. So it kind of sounds like my job at the moment is just shifting things around all the time. This supposed solution created many other problems because there was not enough available land anyway to implement the settlement as it was designed. Now considering the Act of Settlement's length, there is at times a frustrating lack of detail in it. It was nonetheless passed by the Irish Parliament between May and June 1662 and enacted at the end of July when Ormond arrived in Dublin. Ormond had acknowledged in April that it would fail to satisfy a majority of suitors. The tenor of Parliament's response um, might best be summarised in the Chief Baron of, uh, of the Court of Exchequer's comment that while um, lands might have been reserved for each of the interests, it, this was no granting of possession. A private letter addressed to Ormond by a group of peers and members of Parliament shows that the sign signatories believed that the Act failed to provide um, a confirmation of those hopes of being equally provided for at last with any other of his Majesty, Majesty's subjects and instead amounted, amounted to the utter annihilation of their interest. If not modified, um, the Act of Settlement would give them no greater advantage than being mentioned therein. John Parker, Bishop of Elphin, noted, and he was one of the delegates who had gone over to London, he noted that it was less than the Church of Ireland itself had hoped for before they departed Ireland, but much better than they expected after they got to London. Over the next three years, a second round of torturous deliberations took place, where again draft proposals were drawn up, sent to London, thoroughly undermined by the decisions emanating from the Court of, Crown, Court of Claims and the Crown, particularly after Charles II's intrusion into its workings. Thus, by late 1663, the English Solicitor General Finch was again declaring himself thoroughly exasperated with the process. Charting the rationale he used to approve or disregard the new proposals is essentially guesswork, but the political attitude of the King continued to change. After the resistance of the Court of Claims in Ireland in 1663, Charles was not willing to support those elements of the Protestant interest who would oppose his accommodation of innocent Catholics. Domville's um, increased sparring in Dublin is a testament to the hardening of Ormond's administration in Ireland. Throughout 1664, there was hardly any progress to the Bill of Explanation, but a renewed effort in 1665 brought the matter finally to a close. The last stumbling block appears to have been the vesting clause, because the new bill, or the new draft bill, demanded that a certain percentage of land had to be divested to the Crown in order to build up a new stock of land for legal restorations. 
This is a bit like Irish water at the moment by saying you have to pay a bill, but we're not going to tell you how much you're going to have to pay. Questions began to be raised over the vesting clause in the new bill as resistance emerged from among the Protestant landowning elite as to how much land they would be required to vest in the Crown. The Irish Privy Council raised the matter with Finch as they looked for reassurance that the clause would not be written so as to undermine what they had gained under the Act of Settlement. This emerged as quite the stumbling block um, as the Act, uh, as the draft bill was moving its way through the English Privy Council and then the Irish Parliament. Um, and Finch, it's, it's pretty obvious he was aware of this, but he was sticking with the King's line. While not actively resisting Ormond's suggestions for an equitable settlement, the Irish Privy Council, however, was clearly opposed to, create, to the creation of too large a stock of land for the restoration of Catholic nominees and expressed dissatisfaction that the Lord Lieutenant would have sole responsibility over who would be restored amongst the Irish Catholic population. Finch's response to all of these arguments was distinctly unsympathetic. Expressing irritation that this had become an issue, he informed the Irish Privy Council that tis the same vesting clause, literally, which was in the first act of settlement, as was again sent over from Ireland in the explanation bill. In truth, however, the main difference was the size of the remittance that would be made, which had increased from one-sixth to one-third, so that's quite a sizable increase that people would have to forego. Addressing this question, Finch explained that the vesting clause vests no lands in the king, but such as were seized, sequestered, or set out and set apart upon account of the late rebellion or war, which words are conceived to pass this difficulty upon all adventurers and soldiers, that they must prove their lands had to be originally set out to them or those under whom they claim upon account of the late rebellion or war. Essentially, he was saying, justify your claims and you'll get the land. Otherwise, tough. He few qualms about ensuring that the, the land was set aside, which was vexing to many as the prospect of having to make presentations to a commission regarding the size of land and value of their lands continued to prove unpalatable after what had happened at the 1663 Court of Claims. Donville too argued along these lines in Ireland, and together they formed a buttress upon which Ormond and Charles could rely upon to absorb many of the complaints against the proposed bill. It was eventually passed in December 1665 after considerable management in the Irish Parliament and Donville played a critical role in this in the Commons while the Earl of Orrery was also uh, almost flown back in um, to manage the bill through the Commons. In theory, and to finish, the act of explanation increased Crown controls over land deals, ensured that its supporters were recompensed and individualised those that the King wished to reward. It had departed, however, considerably from what was presented by the delegates of the Irish Convention in 1660, but put the Crown on a much more secure footing. Much of this was down to the work of Charles II's legal officers, who were tasked with the role of interpreting what the King may have wanted and attempting to legislate for it. Thank you.